Too Long Didn't Read, the weekly podcast from the Alan Turing Institute, the National Institute for Data Science and AI. Hello and welcome to Too Long Didn't Read, your source for a balanced look at some of the most interesting and impactful stories in data science and artificial intelligence from the past week. We read so you don't have to. My name is Jonah and I'm a content producer here at The Turing and this is my podcast partner. Hello, my name's Smara and I'm a research assistant in data justice and global ethical futures within the public policy program at The Turing Institute. So, Smara will be providing the expert information and I will be asking the non-expert questions. Well, I'll do my best, Jonah, but it should be kept in mind that this podcast is not for experts alone. There is a lot of information being fired at us, and even I find myself in awe of these advances in tech and AI. I can believe it, Smira. I try to keep up by reading the millions of newsletters I subscribe to and the billions of articles and opinion pieces and the breaking news. There's just so much to read. Well, I'll let you in on a secret. A big part of a research assistant's job is to read. So I'm more than happy to ease your reading burden. Well, look at that. We've somehow managed to shoehorn an explanation of the podcast title into our intro. What are the chances? <laughs> so that's right. Each week, we will take a quick look back at some of the big stories in data science and AI and try to wrap our heads around what it means for us and the world at large. So, Smira, this being a weekly podcast, um, I'd just like to ask you how your week has been. Any any highlights so far? Not highlights, but more of a conundrum that I'm facing, having a Halloween party soon, and I just cannot think of a unique enough costume that isn't Barbie or Oppenheimer. So if you have any recommendations, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing what you decide on. Um, thanks for the invite, too. Oh, I think I think it might be with the boss on its way. I'm not really sure, but how was your yeah. week? <laughs> my week was okay. I think my highlight would be that my eight-year-old daughter has today gone on her first guitar lesson which brings me one step closer to having an in-house band that I've always dreamed of. Um, She'll probably be better than me in about a week so we'll see. Oh that's really cute. I can't wait to see the first show. In this week's podcast we can't overlook the significant developments in the ongoing Israel-Palestine conflict which escalated dramatically this week ultimately plunging the region into a state of war. But what part, if any, has AI to play? Smira, I want to talk about disinformation. This week, the EU has warned Meta about the spread of disinformation with regards to the Israel-Palestine conflict, and X, the artist formerly known as Twitter, has also been cautioned recently. Smira, I want to know first, what is disinformation? Is it different to misinformation? And is there a reason we don't just call it lies? Well, I mean, to get to the heart of this, it really requires an explanation of three different terms, starting with disinformation. So disinformation is intentionally misleading. So the folks who put it out there are doing it with the purpose of inciting hate, potentially to change the course of political debate and so forth. Misinformation, on the other hand, is more unintentional, where there wasn't any political motive or any social reason why folks decide to share the information that they did. It was just the lack of information available. But again, without any malicious intent behind it. The other more interesting one is malinformation, which essentially stems from some form of truth, a little nugget of truth, but is exaggerated in a way that it it kind of 
obscures what the truthful element behind that is. And all three concepts are very much at play when we interact with anyone on social media platforms. And it's increasingly more prevalent and tends to spike up when there is a political turmoil or elections around the corner. The reason why we don't say lies, and of course, this is something that academics like to focus on particularly, is that there is a reason to look into the political nature of these events and to look into why people acted in a way. It's not a lie in and of itself, but it is reflective of the larger social patterns that we see when people interact with each other, especially in increasingly partisan times. Okay, but disinformation still sounds like lies to me. I mean, we can say lies when it when it applies, but just calling it lies fails to capture the nuances and the social trends that give rise to misinformation, disinformation or malinformation, which is very important for us to understand why people are responding the way they do and what it means for them to share such information and the consequences behind that. It's funny because if Meta and these other big companies like X were called liars, the news would read very differently, wouldn't it, than uh, disinformation? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So how come... uh, the EU can tell these massive companies off? How come they've got the power? So the EU has been doing well to make sure people on the internet can present themselves as as they want to and protect their rights and interests at the same time. And a part of this is the Digital Services Act or the DSA. It's not the same as GDPR, although it does respond to it in some ways. But the DSA essentially mandates very large online platforms to remove illegal content on their platforms. So this would be Facebook, X, or formerly Twitter, Instagram, and the like. So when there is false information being spread on this, the DSA can step up and and hold the companies responsible for the content that's being shared on their platforms. When you say they're trying to remove illegal content, how do legalities transfer between different territories? How do different laws work between borders? Legislation and jurisdiction play a huge role in this. So whilst territories under the EU are protected by the DSA, other territories are not protected by the same requirements. So X performs in a completely different way in places from Australia to the US to even India for that matter. So yes, there are different understandings of the word legal, which is similar to how there are different understandings of the word fairness or bias and and different aspects like that. But there is a general idea that we shouldn't do harm. Yeah, limiting harm seems like a good place to start. I noticed that X have scrapped their election misinformation team in the US and elsewhere, uh, but it remains in the EU. I presume the DSA is why. So it's, it, I can't give with any certainty an excuse as to why they scrapped their election misinformation team, but they did offer community notes, which replaced an earlier feature that was available on Twitter. And this feature essentially allows users to comment if there's any false or misleading information. So someone like you or myself could comment on a piece of video that's circulating, which we know not to be true, with some evidence maybe as to why we don't think it's true. And this is a method of crowdsourcing some information as to false information or misleading information. However, on the other hand, there is a big issue that comes out of this because it relates to the echo chambers which function on social media, especially with the way algorithms work. So in a sense, this feature only works if sufficient users support the comment, which won't, as I said, have an intended effect because of those echo chambers where people only interact with the information that they tend to support and scarcely come across information that they do not support or are vehemently opposed to. And it was also found in some cases that well-supported comments on community notes were actually found to be propagating more misinformation and the original post was found to be accurate. So this again asks us to 
to step back and really look at the information that we're dealing with. Yeah, I, I presume that the people commenting the most about misinformation might be the people with the most to gain about stopping that information, whether it is misinformation or not, getting out. Uh, tricky one. Well, that brings me to the next question, which is why would X want to scrap a team that protects its users from misinformation? There is no comment from X as of now, and it might be a bit of a stretch for us to make any claims on what Elon's thinking with scrapping the the team. But this does correspond well with the arguments for free speech that we see, especially in the US, particularly around election times. And there's so much to say about the people who, out there who are arguing for free speech for AI systems, for instance. But this is quite a reach. And as of now, all I can say is that there's no comment. Yeah, I suppose with the uh, elections in the US next year, we will probably be revisiting this kind of story. So I imagine the key is to absorb information when you're online with a calculated pinch of salt, right? Is there anything else I can do to protect myself or ourselves to combat these problems? As you said, Jonah, these are tumultuous times across the world, and it's particularly dangerous in some parts of the world right now where there are so many different power asymmetries and allegiances as well. Journalism can be caught up in these issues as well and contribute to the spread of false narratives. So it's important for listeners and ourselves to be aware of what we can do. So we can keep up to date with information with multiple different news agencies. This also breaks the echo chamber idea and we're exposed to more different viewpoints and diverse perspectives on an event. We should also try maybe avoiding sharing videos for shock value, especially if the claims are unsubstantiated. And maybe follow some accounts that are more reliable. I can give, for example, UN handles are usually more reliable in terms of their information. Uh, Journalistic sources like Reuters or the Associated Press might also be good sources of information on this. And most importantly, I think considering the time that we're living in right now, it's okay for users and ourselves to really step away from social media channels if the news is triggering or affecting people in any way. There's no reason to contribute to a debate for the sake of contributing to a debate, but to keep ourselves healthy and safe. That's that's the most important one. That's good advice. Thanks, Mira. And I would add that uh, listening to podcasts like this with balanced views will aid your understanding of the world. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I love to swim, but I alarmed some fellow front crawlers this week as I was splashing about in my local pool by getting way too angry at my smartwatch. The screen doesn't work when it's wet and I couldn't figure out how to pause my workout, losing precious seconds on my PB as I fumbled like a fish out of water, but in water and not a fish. Is this going anywhere? <laughs> it is, Mira. Uh, I want to talk about AI and fitness. My frustration with my smartwatch got me researching if I should get a better one, and that led me down the rabbit hole of wearables and fitness and health data. I read an article about a new smart ring that you can wear for tracking sleep, fitness and stress, and I wondered, A, will we one day be covered head to toe in AI wearable bling, and B, how do these wearables work? I know there are sensors all over them and I know about GPS, but I don't really know what my smartwatch is using to tell me information, which I in turn attach a fair bit of importance to. Okay, I mean, that's a a lot of questions there. But on the first part about AI fitness bling, taking up a large chunk of our dressing and accessories, I can't be too sure right now. Uh, These devices are slowly improving, but not at a rate that makes regulators confident on their use on a diverse group of people. Moreover, there is also still a digital divide where few people can access these innovations of the future. And quite frankly, I personally think a metal strap is much nicer than a clunky silicon fitness watch. 
But more importantly, the tech behind these devices are, is actually fascinating. These devices are trained on vast volumes of data to a certain step counts, sleeping patterns, menstrual cycles, and so on. But the medical literature used to inform the design of these devices and establish thresholds of, say, best practices, these are oftentimes rooted in historical inaccuracies and biases. Oh, really? So what are the historical um, inaccuracies and biases? I mean, there's a whole trove of them out there, so I can't really list everything right now. But if we look back into history and the anthropological history and even medical literature, we can see that race was a huge element in how medical literature was defined as well as treatments for certain people. This this led to the social Darwinism and assumptions on race corresponding to the treatment you get or race corresponding to health factors, which sometimes are not accurate. This is, of course, not to say that race doesn't impact one's um, way of life if it is linked to, say, the health habits or other instances, but it's not always the case. So are you saying my Apple Watch with its lovely silicon strap isn't accurate? Not really, but I think there are some tools out there that are specific and curated, which perform well on certain groups. Usually these are majority groups that make up a chunk of the data set. And often they're based in transatlantic countries like the US or UK. But there are more studies that are being released that these devices are not accurate on outlier groups. These are groups that are not so well represented in their training and testing data sets, which then means that these individuals might be harmed by the use of these these devices. It might not be a direct physical harm, but it is presenting them with false information. Again, not disinformation. <laughs> right. OK. Yeah. So the key word I heard there was individuals. And, and as much as we're treated as kind of herds, each human is an individual. Um, so how can these technologies take into account the massive differences between us, not only our physiological differences, but also our mental differences and capacities and capabilities? Um, We've all got different ideas of what we want from our activities, different limits. And particularly as we get older, we all have very different aches and pains to consider. How can these wearables and performance analytic tools like Strava consider that mass of information? I mean, it's it's a lot of information right now, and it is a looming question for public health practitioners as well as policy folks. Um, and this usually comes out in the case of venture capital. A lot of the funding comes largely from transatlantic VCs. Um, the goal is profit motive. And if the goal is profit motive, it's not public benefit. And that means cutting costs no matter what. Take, for example, data on pregnant women. They are not well represented in data sets because they are considered a high-risk group. And high-risk groups translate to high costs, and which means they are going to be cut from the data set. The result is that these devices will not perform well for this subgroup that is pregnant women and, as I said before, can lead to harmful or misleading results. So what regulators are trying to do right now is to incentivize tech companies to pay more attention to subgroups and minority populations, kind of a way to to shimmy in public benefit for all through their regulation activities, right? But tech companies overcome these regulatory blocks by rebranding the device from general use to use only for a smaller group of people on whom those performance metrics are more accurate. And of course, the data is more relevant. So it's it's a very strange space to be in right now because there's all of these different aspects and public benefit is not really the focus, which I personally think should be. 
Uh, I imagine there are people like me who don't even add in all the data that the apps want about my body and health. Um, and also, like, my battery doesn't last the day, so it's not on there for my sleep analytics. Um, I understand I will incur a sort of data penalty, but how much difference does all that stuff make? And I, am I kind of just wasting the thing that's on my wrist um, by not inputting all that data? Honestly, data penalty is a great phrase to use. I might actually start using that in more papers. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so of course, with the rise of generative AI, I think the continuous stream of data is very important. And especially with medical technology, they use feedback mechanisms where more data comes in to further streamline the effect of the application or the device to the individual person. So there is more of that curation through increasing use of data. But it will still work if you're using it. But it has to be mindful that not everyone can use it at all times. And that still requires a bare basic amount of data on those subgroups I'd mentioned earlier. Yeah, so I suppose there's a sort of um, disparity between the data that they want to collect for monetary purposes and the data they need to or should be collecting to best indicate our fitness. Yeah. That's uh, that's kind of got me thinking about health in general and how these tools could be used for better personalization. But I think we'll save that for another episode because that sounds like a big topic. So much to talk about. And now, artificial intelligence dance. <laughs> Do you like the pun there, Smira? Smira. Sorry, what'd you say? Ar- artificial intelligence dance. No. Because this story is about music. No, no, Jonah, <laughs> no. can I veto that? <laughs> no, you can't. Uh, okay, moving on. Yeah, our final story this week was sparked by the news that Spotify will not ban all AI-made music. They famously took down a song that used AI to recreate the voices of Drake and The Weeknd earlier. How do you say The Weeknd? The Weeknd? Or is it The Weeknd? Weekend. Weekend, is it? All right. Uh, I'm hip. Um, yeah, they took down this song earlier in the year, but have pointed out that AI tools such as Autotune, which can improve the music, questionable, are allowed. Um, the grey area is when AI is used to make music that is clearly influenced by an existing artist, but does not directly impersonate them. Spotify don't have a conclusive answer for that one just yet. But first, Mira, I need to know, asking for a friend, how does AI make music? Honestly, Jonah, this was literally me a few months ago when generative AI and ChatGPT was the be-all and end-all of all conversations. And that led me down a lovely little YouTube spiral trying to really understand the logic behind the technology. And let me tell you, there are a bunch of great sources on there. If you're willing to waste like six hours of your life really trying to sit down and do differentiation and figure out how this works. But for those who don't have that much time, here's a little snippet of how it works. So... Generative AI is largely seen as the next generation of innovation. Um, So all AI models require a lot of data for training and testing. But generative AI is built on the most extensive data sets. They're trawling the entirety of the accessible web for data on text, images, graphics, and of course, music. For music generation in particular, the data input includes publicly available melodies, jingles, beats, and so forth. And in some cases, they've also been found to use copyright music without the consent of the artist. And then this data is fed into a model that essentially provides the probability of the next tone, key, etc. So essentially, based on probability scores, they create a form of music, which is a lot of math for music generation, in my opinion. Yeah. But at the end of it, I mean, these are all these all these mathematical concepts are all there. But it should be noted that AI can't really understand the heart of this, or can't really understand this data. So no AI music generation is going to understand the depth and emotion in classic hits like Britney's Baby One. 
or dome. Absolutely. So uh, this problem is clearly going to grow and grow as the technology snowballs. Does it matter? Is it a media frenzy? Will it blow over? And is anything being done to try and keep ahead of the problems? I mean, I'm not denying that it's a media frenzy. It's all anyone wants to talk about. And almost every day you see a new trend on, say, X that, you know, that relates to some new form of tech that's come out. So that can't say whether it's going to end anytime soon, especially because it's advancing at such a rapid pace that, you know, a lot of us haven't come across before. But to do something to keep ahead of it is a very important question here. Um, I think with the artist strikes in Hollywood and numerous instances of industrial action across the globe for people to earn a fair and secure line of income, I think over here it's important to see what we can do to advocate for protections as an individual, as part of a larger community, but also turn towards governments to step up and protect artists and everyone else who's involved in these in these communities. Presumably then there's a, a risk of sort of AI appropriating um, genres and cultures, um, musical cultures and cultures in general when it comes to music? Is, is that something that's been considered? I think now when we see AI appropriating art, it's always seen from an intellectual property point of view. But I think there's a, a larger social element or a social trend here that reflects something that's been happening for the past few years, if not decades and centuries, where we see music being appropriated or being altered and only certain groups of people profiting off it. Um, for example, I, I really like electronic music. And if you see some of the headline acts at major events, a lot of them are based in in Europe and the transatlantic. But it's important to go back to the roots of that same form of music. And this all began from Detroit at a time when it was very dangerous to be an African-American in America and the kind of restrictions they faced and the kind of experiences they had. And that, of course, influenced their, their way of life. And this is not to say that music doesn't grow and evolve and learn from those experiences. That's a huge part of it. But it does raise a point to look at art that's made by minority groups and what that means for the world and what we can do in being reflective of how we use that that form of art. Yeah. So just really opening our eyes to these histories instead of, you know, just the the more legal intellectual property questions of it. OK, Samira, let's get philosophical. Da -da -da -doom. What is art? Oh, that's a hard one to answer. <laughs> what I mean is, I thought, I thought, I thought I was the tech expert. I'm not here to answer these questions. <laughs> what I mean is, if we limit AI in the arts, is it unfair when we allow other industries to go crazy with AI? Why don't the same rules apply? And should they? I mean, this is again a really interesting question. There's a lot of debates in AI in art, but there's also a lot of debates in terms of personal data being used to train a machine. So. Definitely those conversations are taking place, but it's more important for those conversations to trickle down to the average person because art isn't just something that's made by an exclusive group of people, but is probably something more than that. And maybe the personal data that we have of ourselves is also a form of art because it reflects our experiences and maybe who we are. Is that too philosophical, oh, Jonah? <laughs> I like that, yeah. That, that just makes me an artist on so many different levels. Mm, questionable, but sure, sure. <laughs> Samira, we have made it through episode one Our first ever episode of Too Long Didn't Read Thank you for your excellent insight And putting up with my terrible jokes 
Okay. I'm sorry. Was I supposed to say thank you? <laughs> you can say that's okay. <laughs> oh, your jokes are brilliant. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. I, I have one more question for you. Um, so that we end on a high, what do you have to feel positive about with regards to AI this week? So this isn't fully AI related, but a group of researchers led by Dr. Astrid Linder at the Swedish National Road and Transport Research Institute in Linköping in Sweden have improved the car crash test dummy to be more reflective of non-male physiology. And this is the first change we've had to this car crash test dummies in over 60 years, which means there can be better data and more informed safety mechanisms in cars. And better data, as we're probably going to uncover in further episodes, is pivotal to overcoming the garbage in, garbage out problem that has plagued AI development for years. So that's a little happy note that we can probably end this episode on, Jonah. Excellent. That is good news. Thank you. So that's all we have time for this week on Too Long Didn't Read. We read so you didn't have to. We've learned that we need to be cautious of the multiple ways to tell a lie or disinform, that AI fitness tools are not only getting the data they need to help us, but the data they want to better sell to us, and that as the AI debate continues, Smira has inadvertently created a new form of art, data art. I love that. Thanks for listening. Find us on Instagram at theturinginst and email us at tldr at turing.ac.uk. Hit or tap the subscribe button, share with those who you think might care, and until next week, from Smira and I, goodbye. Bye-bye. Toodles. (laughs) Ta-ta.